Hey, this is Brent Ingersoll from King's Church. Thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. I pray that this message you're about to hear empowers you, encourages you, challenges you, and equips you to live the life that Jesus has for you. Thanks for tuning in. My assignment, I got an assignment actually, uh, as to what I was to preach, and, and Brent said, I want you to talk about reconciliation with God which is a big word, reconciliation. But reconciliation really means just coming back into relationship with God again. And as I thought about that immediately, my mind went to a passage of Scripture that I love because it contains my favorite verse in all of the Bible. And so I'm going to ask you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in chapter 5, starting there. Just a warning, we're going to be all over the place, okay? So going to a lot of Scriptures. But 2 Corinthians 5, beginning at verse 17... I want you to notice as I read through these verses to the end of this chapter, how many times the word reconciliation appears in it. Beginning of verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Oh, I'd just like to preach on that. That's such a great statement. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself. Through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then this is my favorite verse in all of the scripture. It says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse doesn't use the word reconciliation, but what that verse does is it tells us why reconciliation is possible. That God made Jesus take on all of the sin of the world. He became, as it were, sin on our behalf. He took your sin. He took my sin. And Romans tells us that he condemned it on the cross. He punished it on the cross as the Father dealt with sin in his Son Christ. And then he did that so that you and I could be made righteous, so we could receive the righteousness of God. Reconciliation is possible because of that exchange. And I find that verse so interesting because Paul uses very specific language when he makes that statement. It's a language that describes an exchange that's taking place. We gave him our sin, and he gave us his righteousness. And that language, we may miss it in our culture, but in Paul's day when he wrote this, those who were part of his audience reading this, especially his Jewish audience, would have recognized that he was speaking using language that really had tones of covenant. He's talking about the idea of covenant, this exchange that takes place between two parties. And covenant is so powerful. It's not a word we use that much today, but covenant talks about something that's deeper than a contract. It's deeper than an agreement. It's deeper than a promise. Covenant is something that involves the shedding of blood. It's something that binds two groups of people together for life until they are dead. I mean, the, the closest thing to covenant that we really could think of in our modern context perhaps is marriage, at least in the ancient 
or, or, or in the traditional view of it, this idea that two people become one. We used to actually refer to it as a marriage covenant. And so I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about covenant. And in order to do that, I need to tell you a story. And so I want to go back in time about 3,000 years ago into the life of a young man who spent his whole life hiding. Every morning he woke up terrified, always looking around, always afraid of what might happen to him. He was raised on fear. And the one thing that drove terror into his heart was now upon him. And that morning when he woke up, he knew that he was a dead man. He saw the cloud of dust on the horizon growing, and he heard the news that chariots were thundering into his little town, and he knew that David's chariots were coming to town. You see, 25 years earlier, his grandfather Saul, who was the king of Israel, and his father Jonathan were in battle with the Philistines, and they were both put to death. And in that moment, even though he was only five years old, he was the most wanted man in the land because in an ancient culture like that when a new king came to power it was usually within the line of succession but if somebody came to power that was not in that line of succession then it was customary to take all of those who may have claimed to the throne and to eliminate them and so this boy even though he's only five years old he's heir to the throne and his life is in danger and he doesn't understand that but his nurse does and so she gathered him up and rushed him out of the palace as quickly as she could but in her rush she tripped and fell and she landed on him she could hear his bones snapping when she landed on him and both of his ankles were broken and he screamed all the way until they got as far away from the land as they could go and so she wrapped up his ankles as best she could but it was really too little and so he would spend the rest of his life as a cripple but she rushed him as far and as fast and as long as she could taking him all the way to the edge of the territory to a little town called Lodabar. Lodabar was one of those towns that nobody really thought of, nobody really knew about, and so he was raised in Lodabar. Hmm. He, um, he heard that David became king, and David was dangerous. He had heard the stories all his life about David, how he had fought the giant and when he knocked him down with a stone and a sling, he went up to the giant, took the giant's own sword, and decapitated him, literally cut his head off. He was a violent man. He heard about how David, in order to win the daughter of Saul in marriage, went out and single-handedly killed 1,000 Philistines. David wasn't safe. And so all his life, he had been warned to not leave Lodabar, to not trust anyone, to always be suspicious. Don't let anyone know who you are, and especially stay as far away from David as you possibly can. But that day, David's chariots came to town. He had been discovered. And so David's soldiers gathered him up, put him on the chariot, and they took him back to Jerusalem and laid him on the marble floor in front of the king. And he lay there on his face, groveling before the king and begging him, O king and my lord, I beg you, have mercy upon me. And David looked at him with a furrowed brow. And I want to pause right there in the story. And I want to go back a little bit further back in time. We'll come back to that story, but I want to go back a thousand years earlier than that to a night when one of the most extraordinary things 
and all of the world took place. It was customary in that age for tribes or for individuals or families to cut covenant with one another, and that's how they referred to it, cutting covenant. But on this day, something incredibly unusual happened. God cut covenant with a man named Abram that we would later learn is Abraham. And so I want you to turn there. If you've got your Bible, go over to Genesis and turn to chapter 15 of Genesis. That's the first book of the Bible. If you're not familiar, Genesis 15. And I want to look at verses 1 through 10. It says, After these things the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. But behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. He said, O oh Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old lamb and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. He was getting ready to enact a covenant ceremony with God. I remember when I was a student at Asbury that I sat in a class with Dr. Coker, and I remember him drumming into us that covenant is at the very heart of the Old Testament. If we're going to understand the Old Testament and the New Testament, we need to understand covenant. And he shared with us that covenant often had many different steps to it. And because the Bible's written in minimalist language, the authors would not always give us all of the details of something that was going on, and particularly if those who were reading understood. So when he talks about one of the steps of covenant, he may only mention that one thing but his readers would have understood that all of the other steps were also involved in that. Just like we would say, for example, that somebody, so-and-so and so-and-so, went to the altar and they exchanged rings. We would understand, okay, they got married, but there's a lot of other stuff that happened in the ceremony. But we don't need to mention that stuff because we know that that's all included. And that's what's going on in this moment when God is cutting covenant with Abraham. But I want to walk you through the different steps that happen typically when someone would cut covenant together. One of the things they would often do is exchange clothing. Because in Jewish thought, clothing represented who you are. If I give you a piece of my clothing, I'm giving you a piece of me, and as you give me a piece of yours, I'm taking on you so that we're joining together in our identity. And then, of course, there was the cutting 
of animals. And in this one, it's odd how it's described. Abraham took these animals and he cut them in two and he laid them half one side over against the other. And typically what they would do is dig a trench with a, with a bit of a ditch and they would place the animals half on one side of the trench, half on the other side of the trench, and the blood would flow into the trough that was at the bottom of the trench and they would stand in the trough, they would raise their hands, they would recite their vows to one another and then they would walk through the trough, go out the other side like in a figure eight and come back into the middle of the trough and they would say as this blood is splashing up on my ankles may what has happened to these animals be done to me if I fail to keep the commitments of this covenant so this was serious stuff this wasn't just an agreement or a contract this was something you were in on pain of death if you broke out of it and you were in it until you died and then the primary parties would often draw blood Usually it was some kind of a taking a knife and slitting their wrist and they would often join their wrists together, joining their blood. That idea of blood brothers comes out of that ceremony. And then they would often uh, have a, a sign of the covenant, a seal of the covenant. And often what they would do is take powder and they would rub it into the wound so that it formed a permanent scar, so that it was a lasting reminder that they were in covenant with one another. And then there was the exchanging of names. We see hints of that even in the marriage covenant in a traditional marriage where the wife will take on the last name of the husband. They would exchange names with each other. And then they would exchange assets. My debts are yours. My assets are yours and vice versa. And then there would be a memorial erected, either the piling of stones or the planting of trees or the exchanging of sheep so that all of the witnesses around would have a lasting reminder that these two groups or these families, or these two people are in covenant with one another, and then a meal was shared. And the meal often consisted of two parts. It often consisted of bread. And they would break the bread, and they would feed it to one another. You ever been to a marriage reception where they take the cake, we make it a fun thing, and they cut the cake, and they shove it in each other's face, right? It all comes out of this tradition. They would feed one another bread, and then they would share wine, because wine was a symbol of life. It was a symbol of of blood. And so that, 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 those were the typical steps in a covenant. And one of the things Dr. Coker reminded us of is that your entire Bible is about covenant. We divide it into two parts, Old Testament and New Testament. But the word testament is really another word for covenant. And some of the older Bibles describe it that way, the old covenant and the new covenant. So God cut covenant with Abram that night. Now let's go back to the story of Mephibosheth. He's on his face. He's groveling before the king, begging for his life. David looks at him with a furrowed brow, and he says, you thought that I was going to kill you? I didn't bring you here to kill you. I brought you here to show you kindness. Let me tell you something. Years ago, your father Jonathan and I we were best of friends. We were brothers. We were more than brothers. We cut covenant together. We dug a ditch and we divided animals 
in half. We slit our wrists and joined our blood. We made our vows together, and I vowed, in fact, your father, he gave me his armor, and that's what the scripture mentions, and I gave him some of my clothing, and I made a vow to your father that if I ever became king, because he knew that's probably what would happen, he said, if I ever became king, that I would never allow harm to come to any of his children. And now that I know that you're alive, I don't want to do harm to you. I intend to keep my promise. And I am going to show kindness to you. In fact, here is Ziba. Ziba was the servant of your grandfather. He has 15 sons and 20 servants. I'm going to give you all of the land that belonged to him. And they're going to work for you as they worked for your grandfather. And in addition to that, I want you to sit at my table in the palace for the evening meal. And I want you to share the meal every night with me and my sons as we all sit around the table. I want to treat you like one of my sons. And Mephibosheth is just stunned. In fact, if we look over in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verse 8, it says this again. He prostrated himself and said, What is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? So every night, Mephibosheth went to David's table, and he ate with his family. But you know, the fears of Lodabar, they're, they're just under the surface. We can imagine that one night, perhaps, as they're sitting around the table, one of David's sons, perhaps Absalom, was talking to Adonijah, one of David's other sons. They're whispering and they're laughing. Maybe they're looking over at Mephibosheth. And those doubts of Lodabar start to rise in his heart. Am I really accepted? Am I really safe? Will David protect me? And that night after dinner, David pulled Mephibosheth aside and said, Come here. I want to show you something. And then David pulled up the sleeves on his cloak. And Mephibosheth saw the scar on his wrists. And he said, Mephibosheth, every morning when I get up and I put on my cloak, I see those scars. And I remember that your father and I, we are in covenant together. And I made a vow to protect you. And in those times when you feel like you don't fit in, during those times when you feel like you're not accepted, I want you to remember the scars. Now I want you to fast forward in time. Let's go forward a thousand years to about the year 33 AD. And I want to go to the upper room during Passover when Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples. And in Luke chapter 22, verse 20, Luke 22, verse 20, it says, And in the same way he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup which is poured out for you, and look at the language, is the new covenant in my blood. Jesus was cutting covenant with his disciples. And then he was nailed to the cross soon after that buried, rose from the dead. And on the day of his resurrection, Jesus was walking on a road that would go to the little village of Emmaus. 
and two of his disciples were walking on that road, and he hurried to catch up to them, to walk with them on the road. They didn't recognize that it was him, but they got into a discussion, and he started opening up to them the scriptures, the, the prophets and the writings from what we would call the Old Testament, showing them that it was necessary for the Messiah to come and to suffer and die and rise again. And their hearts burned within them as he was sharing with them the word. They got to Emmaus, and he made like he was going to move on, but they encouraged him to stay and eat with them. So they sat down to a meal to eat together. And Jesus took bread and he broke it. And I want to read it to you in Luke 24, verse 30, just a couple chapters over. It says this, when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it. And breaking it, he began giving it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. What was it about Jesus breaking the bread that opened their eyes? Maybe they had seen him break bread before. Maybe these were disciples that were in the upper room. Maybe when he raised his arms, they saw the scars on his wrists. Certainly that's what Jesus emphasized when he appeared to his disciples at the end of the day over in John chapter 20, they were held up in a room, locked away for fear of the Jews and fear of the, the Roman guards. And Jesus appeared among the 11. And Thomas had said, I'm not going to believe he's risen from the dead unless I can feel the scars with my own hands. And in verse 27, it says, And he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. Look at this. And see my hands. And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. He said, see my hands. Now, scholars, as I've studied this, say that when Jesus was nailed to the cross, the nails were not in his hands. This language could be worded differently and still be appropriate to the Greek when it was originally written. Because if he had been nailed in his hands, it would have torn away from the weight. So they believed that he was nailed in his wrists. So Jesus is saying to Thomas and to the others, see my wrists. I want you to look at the scars. And then some days later, Jesus was ascended up into heaven. And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, it tells us what Jesus is doing. It says, therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives. We're always saved. Our salvation is on and on because he constantly lives to make intercession or to stand in the gap for you and I. And it's a good thing he does because all of us, we were all raised in Lodabar. Every one of us have heard that God is angry and he's out to punish us. We're crippled with sin. We deserve death. But Jesus extends his arms to the Father and he sees the scars and remembers that we are in covenant with him and he stands in that gap between the Father and us. But, but Satan comes along. The great accuser of the brethren. The Bible says day and night he accuses us before the throne. And he slanders us to the Father because he knows our weaknesses. 
He knows all the stuff that we have done, and he's quick to accuse us, and often he's right because we're guilty. But Jesus shows him the scars in his wrists, and the devil knows only too well that we are in covenant with him, and the accuser is silenced. It's not about what you deserve. It's not about your performance. It's not about how good you are. It's not about how righteous and about how holy you can live. In fact, I want to show you something. I took you back to Genesis 15, to that covenant ceremony with Abram. That forms a prototype, really, for all of the covenant ceremonies of the Bible. And there's something that happened in that ceremony that I intentionally left out. But I want to take you back, and I want you to see it. So go back to Genesis chapter 15. And I want to look, as we, as we go there, look at verse 12. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. He was put to sleep. And then if you look over to verses 17 and 18, it says, It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God put Abram to sleep, and then God, in some manifestation of a torch, he went down into that trench between those animals, and he alone passed through those animals. He alone made the vows. This was a completely one-sided covenant. God was saying, Abram, this is all of me. I'm doing all of it. I'm walking through the animals. I'm going through the channel of death. I'm making the vows, and all you have to do is believe. And that forms a prototype for the covenant that you and I are in. In fact, Paul connects the dots. If you go over to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, I want you to notice how Paul describes this. In Galatians 3, in verse 16, it says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. And then look down in verse 29. It says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. That's saying that Jesus cut covenant with you and I the same way that God cut covenant with Abram. And we are all part of that covenant ceremony. And just like God's covenant with Abraham was one-sided, Jesus' covenant with you and I was one-sided as well. And all of the parts of the covenant are there. I want you to notice them with me. One of the things the ancients did was they exchanged clothing. That's what Jonathan did in the story. It tells us he gave David his armor. Jesus did the same thing with you and I. Isaiah, in chapter 61, verse 10, speaking prophetically and looking forward into time over what would happen, made this statement, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. He gave us the robe of righteousness. We could give him nothing because the Bible says that our righteousness, it's as filthy rags. And so Jesus did it all. It's all one-sided. We also see that the ancients would shed blood. 
Jesus shed his own blood on the cross. Not you and I. It was him. While we were still enemies of God, it says that Jesus died for you and for me. And just like the ancients would pass through this trough of blood and death, Jesus passed through the portal of death as the champion and the one that would blaze the trail so that you and I could have life. And just like the ancients had a seal, they would rub powder into their arms. Jesus gave us a seal as well. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, Paul describes it this way. If you want to turn over there, Ephesians 1, 13, he says, In him you also, after, being, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. The Holy Spirit is a seal. The Holy Spirit is a reminder. In fact, he tells us that he is a down payment for the inheritance that's coming to you and I. And you think about how amazing it is that the presence of God lives in you, that the very God who said, let there be light, and everything was created, the very God that rose from the dead, the God that conquered Satan and conquered sin, that God lives inside of you. And that's simply a seal and the down payment of what is to come. The inheritance is so much greater than even that. But he provided a seal for you and I, just as the ancients exchanged names. God did the same. He took on the name Son of Man, and he gave you and I the name Children of God. Just as the ancients planted a memorial, he planted a memorial with his cross. When Jesus died on that cross, that was a symbol of Roman execution. But today, the cross is something that is seen all over the world. We put it on our churches. We put it on our stationery. We put it in our jewelry. Because to you and I, it's not a symbol of execution. It's a symbol of redemption. It has become a symbol, a memorial that you and I are in covenant with Almighty God. And just as the ancients shared a meal... Jesus shared a meal with his disciples in the upper room when he broke the bread and he took the wine. We took communion today, and in a sense, we're rehearsing the covenant meal with Jesus. We're saying, we're in covenant all over again. If Jesus gave me the offer to say yes to him, I'd say it all over again. And this meal is a reminder to me that Jesus cut covenant for me. And just as the ancients would exchange debts and assets... You and I did the same, and that takes us back to the verse where we began. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now stop and just think about that, that we might become the righteousness of who? How righteous is God? God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say, I am a saint? Any hands here? Anybody? No. Am I the only saint in this entire room? Oh, good. There's three saints in the entire room, four of us. We think a saint is somebody like Mother Teresa, somebody who's so good that the whole world takes notice of it. But do you know in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, when Paul's writing one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament, he says, you are saints by calling. Why? Because they're called out ones. They are ones that God positionally says, because Christ is in you, you are holy. That's why when Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are to be perfect, even as my heavenly Father is perfect. But none of us can be perfect in terms of how we live experientially. We're not perfect, but positionally, because the righteousness of Jesus Christ has been placed on us, God looks at you and he says, you're perfect. He can't love you any more than he already does. He can't love you any less than he already 
already does because you are in the righteousness of God himself. That's the exchange that Jesus went through when he cut covenant with you and me. The reason that you're forgiven, the reason that you have eternal life, the reason that you are promised a place in heaven is because you are in covenant with Jesus and the proof of that are the scars on his wrists. The rest of his life, Mephibosheth could say, you see those scars on David's wrists? Those were for me. And someday, you and I will be in heaven with God. And we'll see those scars. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6, speaking prophetically, Zechariah was looking forward in time, and he says this, And one will say to him, What are these wounds between your arms? Then he will say, Those with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Jesus still bears the scars. He is the glorified, risen God, but he still bears the scars of his covenant that he cut with you and me. And Jesus even told a story about it. He said there was a father who had two sons. And the younger son wanted the inheritance that was coming to him. This is an honor culture, and in that culture, you would wait until the father died to receive your inheritance and for a son to say I want the inheritance is a really a way of saying I wish you were dead things weren't good between this son and the father but he gave him the inheritance and we Jesus said he went out and he spent it on wine and women and got to the point eventually where nothing was left and he's living literally in the mud with the pigs and he said even my father's servants are living better than I am I'm going to go back to my father and just beg if he'll have mercy on me to just let me be a servant I don't even need to be a son anymore so he made his way back to the father and it says the father was standing out in the field and saw his son from a distance coming and knew that it was his son and immediately he said to his servants quickly go kill the fatted calf throw a party because my son is coming and the older son was ticked off about it he said wait a minute father you never threw a party for me you never killed a fatted calf for me and he said to the brother he said my son you have always been with me but then he turned to this son who hadn't even approached him yet and he said but my son was dead and now he is alive. And he said, when that man came, the father opened his arms up. And without question, without anything, in fact, the son began to say, let me be one of your servants. And the father said, absolutely not. And he welcomed that boy back in. Even though he'd spent the inheritance, it didn't matter. He welcomed him back in as a son. And like the prodigal who ran to his father. God is standing in heaven now, and he is saying in the words of Jesus, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavily burdened, and I will give you rest. <laughs> the path between you and him is completely open. We sang about that veil being torn, which was a symbol that the path is open and when you run into his arms the one of the things that you're going to see that will bring peace to your heart are the scars on his wrists in fact John describes it Pastor Brent read a little bit of Revelation 5 I want to go back there this is my final scripture today but in Revelation chapter 5 John has a vision of the throne of God 
of God. And in verse 5, he says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book in its seals. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then John turns to look at this lion. But he doesn't see a lion. In the next verse, he says, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain. He's a lamb. He's not dead. He's standing. He's very much alive. He's very much glorified. But he says it's a lamb as if slain. I saw his scars in that eternal throne. Every time you doubt whether God will love you or accept you, Remember that the scars on his wrist bind you to an eternal covenant. And when covenant was cut, it was for life. And the good thing is it's a one-sided covenant. Jesus did it all, so it's not about your life. And Jesus is eternal. He will never die. So the covenant will never die. It goes on and on and on for all of eternity. So no matter, matter how far you wander from God, his scarred arms are always open, waiting. I'm going to ask you to pray with me. You'd stand for just a moment. Jesus, you have, you've done everything. You've made it possible for us to enter into your presence, to share in your nature. You, you said through Peter that we are partakers of the divine nature. There's this amazing dance between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, that perichoresis that it's called, as you are one in fellowship, and yet you've made us part of the divine nature. You have invited us into the dance, and we confess we're not divine. We're just human, but you have involved us in that deep, intimate, eternal relationship. You've given us privileges, God, that we can't even begin to really comprehend at this point in time. And we will spend eternity in wonder that you've invited us in. But Lord, there are people today that aside from thinking of those lofty ideas, they just wonder, does God even like me? Does God even care about me Is would he even accept me? And I pray, God, that you would help us always when those doubts come, when the enemy tries to bring uncertainty into our heart that we will remember those scars that didn't go away when you rose from the dead, but those scars are with you for eternity as an eternal reminder that we are in covenant with you. And I can look at those scars and I can say, see those scars? Those are for me. Help us to remember it, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.